M-S-W Media. Thanks to HelloFresh for supporting our show. Go to HelloFresh.com slash CleanUp16 and use code CLEANUP16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. The rule of law is not just some lawyer's turn of phrase. It is the very foundation of our democracy. The essence of the rule of law is that like cases are treated alike. That there not be one rule for Democrats and another for Republicans, one rule for the powerful, another for the powerless, one rule for the rich and another for the poor, or different rules depending upon one's race or ethnicity. To serve as Attorney General at this critical time is a calling I am honored and eager to answer. So yeah, now it's clean up on aisle 45 time. And for a long while yet, it is going to be clean up on aisle 45. Hey, everybody, welcome to episode 122 of Clean Up on Aisle 45. It is Wednesday, May 24th, 2023. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, Allison, I'm Pete Strzok. We have so much news to cover today, including top-secret document leaker Jack Teixeira being held without bail, significant updates in both the Fulton County and Manhattan District Attorney's cases, and new information about Jim Jordan's weaponization whistleblowers. Ah, yes, the old weaponization whistleblowers. And we have a new $3.78 billion lawsuit filed by Trump for defamation against the Washington Post for their reporting on the Truth Social Funding, which is currently under criminal investigation in the Southern District of New York, by the way. But first, Pete, we have so many new patrons. It's amazing, Allison. I can't get over it, but (laughs) it's amazing. Thank all of you. We're going to have to split this up into like four different sections to get to everybody. But thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, And uh, apparently you're campaign to go get other people to sign up as a patron is working. So keep it up. You can do it by going to patreon.com slash aisle 45 pod A-I-S-L-E 45 P-O-D. Whatever you put as your name, we will read it on the air, starting with Susan Seeley, Joyce Scott, Patricia Best, Anita Finkelstein, Sean O'Neill, Laura Bider Anderson, Kelly Davideed, Kirby Stewart, Nicole, Maribeth Dono, Laura Lee, Darla Hendricks, Cash for Cussin, Dalla Fadams, Dalla Fadams, excuse me, try this again. Cash for cussin', dollars for dams, revenue for rants. Yes, Pete, this means you. Uh, Christopher Toomey, Cindy Southworth, Jennifer Smith, Karen Archibald, Jennifer Raines, Cindy Woolner, Carrie Rice Wagner, Kelly Doak, or Doak, uh, Andrea Marsalek, Siobhan, I believe is how you say that, Megan Kinane, Tina Taylor, Jennifer Chapman, Jen Bronwyn, and Susan Boyer. Wow, that is a lot. And that's just the first round. So uh, let's get to the news here. Uh, And again, thanks to patrons, you make this show happen. Let's start with Fulton County. Last week, we reported Fani had filed her opposition to Trump's 51-page lawsuit asking to throw out the special purpose grand jury report, expunge it all from the record, and have her removed from the case. Well, there's a lot of news that's come out since then. Remember how Trump asked for 21 days to respond to Fani Willis's filing in his lawsuit? Well, Judge McBurney has ruled on his request. <laughs> he, he says, 
Uh, Trump wants this, Trump wants that, then he wants 21 days. And he says, to date, the court has received over 500 pages of briefings, arguments, and exhibits on the issues raised by Mr. Trump and Ms. Latham. That is plenty. <laughs> there will be no more briefings unless it is solicited in writing by the court, period. <laughs> so not only because I was like, give him three days, give him seven days. He gave him no days and said, I don't want any more of your shit. <laughs> Yeah, and, and shit indeed, right? I mean, 500 pages that is Trump's pattern, whether he is filing something in front of Eileen Judge Cannon down in Florida or anywhere else that he seems to engage in litigation. It's just regurgitated, you know, nonsense designed to make Trump feel happy about himself with little to no legal merit necessarily. And I think, you know, the judge clearly has had enough. And uh, anytime he says yeah. not only no, but there have been more than 500 pages of it, that's plenty. Yeah. <laughs> Not just no, but fuck no. Judge McBurney. Uh, now, a group of bipartisan uh, federal and Georgia state prosecutors have filed an amicus brief in this case opposing Trump and Latham's motions. And when I say Latham, I'm talking about Kathy Latham. She's the one fraudulent elector who I guess everybody's tattling on that was being represented by DeBro. Uh, and has gotten her own not only counsel, but she's also moved to join Trump's lawsuit. Uh, she was one of the people uh, responsible for handing over voter data and voting machine data in Coffee County, Georgia. Uh, but there's an amicus brief now from a bunch of federal and Georgia state prosecutors. And they say being subject to criminal investigation and potential indictment is not a cognizable injury that can support standing. So they have filed a really nice amicus brief. Uh, Shanlin Wu is on there, who's a friend of the podcast. So the, that amicus brief has been filed in this particular lawsuit as well. Now, Fonnie Willis has told the courts to clear their dockets for the weeks of August 7th and August 15th. She wants nobody in the courthouses. And she tells her staff, we're going to be working remotely starting the last week of July. And the implications here, correct me if I'm wrong, are that Trump is going to be indicted by Fonnie Willis. Yeah, that's clearly my read. I mean, nobody cares. There, there's nobody who is going to polarize the nation to the extent that she would see sort of this forewarning to the courts as well as to law enforcement and other authorities saying, get ready. I mean, it, nobody is going to turn out for Rudy. Nobody is going to turn <laughs> out for Sidney Powell. Nobody is going to turn out for any of these other knuckleheads. But even Mark Meadows. Yeah. Even, yeah, even Mark Meadows, right? Um, but they would for Trump. So, I mean, I take this as a reading. My read is absolutely uh, they anticipate, you know, at least at a minimum, the possibility of Trump being indicted. I mean, anything can change between now and then, but I don't think you make those sorts of requests as well as warning. And again, think she has told, she's asked the courts for this period in time. She has told law enforcement and emergency responders about this period in time. So everybody involved in this process, she has said, look, you know, beginning of August. And I think too, there's, if I remember correctly, somebody reported that the courts have like a retreat at the either the very end of July or beginning of August, but like essentially saying, hey, when you're back, please keep your schedules clear so we can get through whatever's coming. And I agree with you. I think what is coming, the top of that list is an indictment of Donald J. Trump. Yeah. And if they're out for that first week of August and then they have their calendar cleared for the second and third week of August, two weeks um, seems to me like it might be a series of indictments. Um, and I and I know that we're going to be getting uh, some more news and information on that probably today or tomorrow or later this week. Um, so, you know, we're going to keep an eye out for that and we'll report that on our, you know, every weekend Pete and I do 
uh, bonus episode for patrons uh, at the, the $2 R-rated, the R-rated the- news. Come l- <laughs> listen to your Apple podcast for the family version. Come for the <laughs> patron episode for the swears. Yeah. And here's something else that happened this week, too. Another Trump ally has indicated he might be a target for indictment in a court filing. And that's Ray Smith III, a lawyer who repped Trump in his lawsuit to overturn the Georgia results, has told lawyers he cannot testify in the civil suit filed by Shea Moss and Ruby Freeman, the two election workers in Georgia, against Rudy Giuliani. Moss and Freeman are suing Rudy, and Ray Smith has been subpoenaed in that case. And he says he can't testify because he could be indicted by the in the Fonnie Willis case. And anything he testifies to in the civil suit could be used against him in the criminal probe. So Shea and Moss have filed a court document saying uh, Ray Smith would file to block their subpoena because he's somewhere between a subject and a target in the criminal probe. Now, Smith, being part of the Trump lawsuit in Georgia, is interesting because we know from the Eastman emails that were handed over to the January 6th committee that Merrick Garland got before any of that fight went down that Trump was told that the fraud numbers in Georgia lawsuits were false, but he signed them and filed it anyhow. So lawyers on both sides tried to agree, Pete, to a a limited scope, right? Stuff that he wouldn't plead the fifth to, stuff that wouldn't be covered by this criminal probe by Fonnie Willis. But when Moss and Freeman sent the questions over that they wanted to ask, the talks broke down. Smith's lawyers said, the list of topics clearly demonstrates an offensive use of the deposition, which directly implicates the privileges that we have previously discussed. So now Freeman and Moss are seeking guidance from the judge in the case, who happens to be <laughs> Judge Beryl Howell. <laughs> who, who has a little bit of experience in complex high-profile litigation, <laughs> just a, a smidge. Um, just a tad. And she like recently gave Rudy the Red, Red and the Riot Act because he's not handing over documents. He says he can't afford to pay the people that look through his documents. And so now she is requiring him to prove that he's broke to the court. So that's fun. Yeah, and I don't think this. Look, they have a right in a civil case to get his uh, testimony and take his deposition and ask those things that are relevant to the case. It may be that with the, you know, a, a competing criminal exposure, that uh, he has some ability to protect himself and or defer this. But at the end of the day, you know, they need again. If he, if he doesn't do it, uh, you know, do they grant him immunity? Do they, you know, does he not testify and they're able to draw some adverse inference from that? I don't know. But, you know, going back, what's what's interesting, too, when you were talking about the way, you know, Fonnie Willis has asked for those weeks. I mean, that's a lot of time for a lot of judges. And I'm very curious to see, you know, I don't, I am not an expert on Georgia state law, but I'm very curious to see how she structures her indictments. In other words, whether this is one big conspiracy with or one big charging document with everybody involved in the various separate components or if she breaks it up and if you have standalone indictments of one person or two people working together. So how that's structured is going to be very interesting. One, in terms of just simply how they're initially processed through. The, you know, and some people presumably are not Georgia state residents, so they're going to have to come in and surrender and be processed just like Trump was up in, uh, in Manhattan. And then the other thing is when, you know, when it comes to trial, it, it speaks to like how complicated it is. I mean, is this going to be something like the Oath Keeper Proud Boy trials where you have a number of defendants all with different lawyers all engaging in, you know, potentially sometimes uh, competing pleadings or are these going to be split out into different individual cases? I suspect there'll be a combination of both, but it's going to be very interesting to see from, you know, a sort of geeky insider perspective when this all goes down, sort of the logistical dance of getting all of these different people into court, seeing how they plead, 
watching, you know, the court security, watching how they play the media, watching the inevitable frenzy that's going to be on the media 24-7 while all this is going on for a couple of weeks. So going to be interesting. We've got a little bit of time to get ready, but um, I'm curious to see what that looks like. Yeah. And she's no stranger to large racketeering cases. Um, and, and, you know, we know from public reporting that this looks like she's probably looking into racketeering, which is we have federal RICO and racketeering laws, but there are also Georgia state racketeering laws. And she brought or worked on a case, I think back in 2015 ish timeframe uh, for administrators, school administrators cheating and, uh, you know, uh, for students on on falsifying testing. Uh, for 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 students, and that was a huge long case, and the trial took uh, like a half a year, and it took a year to schedule. Like it took a really long time. So I, we're looking at you know potentially even post election yeah. uh, trial for this. So, uh, but you know, keep in mind that um, the presidents cannot pardon state crimes, and uh, not even the governor of Georgia can pardon state crimes. There is a pardoning board in Georgia, and if Kemp wins the governorship again, I hope he doesn't. But if he does, uh, he's not the best friend of Donald Trump, I would say, uh, given everything that uh, Donald Trump said about him and Raffensperger and other Georgia officials like Sterling uh, back during uh, the, the 2020 attempts to overthrow the election. So, you know, we'll see. We'll see how that works out. But, you know, I don't want anybody to be too terribly concerned uh, that that a trial may happen after the election. You know, it's up to us to vote. It's up to us to make sure that, you know, a Republican doesn't get back into office. But, you know, the, the, the courts in Georgia are pretty backed up. Yeah. And again, too, you know, in thinking about Georgia, I mean, Brad Raffensperger is a Georgia Republican. There are a lot of Georgia Republicans that we heard from, whether it was in front of the January 6th committee or on and around the time of the election, who were, you know, like a lot of state officials where it's not, you know, what what made me so happy was, you know, and you look out and a lot of folks out in, you know, Arizona and out west. The party didn't matter. They were just saying, look, we, we're we running an honest election. And these people who are questioning it are dishonest. They're trying to like, you know, pull the wool over people's eyes. But election officials who were members of Republican or Democratic Party that were just trying to do an honest election. And so I think, you know, when you look at Georgia in particular, you know, you mentioned Kemp. Yeah, absolutely. He's a Republican. But I, I don't I don't think at the end of the day it was something like this. Not only is there no love lost, but I think there's also like, you know, we're Georgia. We're Georgian citizens. We want the United States, we want ourselves to show it, but we want everybody else to know that we can not only run a free and fair state level election, but we can also, if there are crimes that are committed, we can prosecute it in the same way. So, you know, good on Georgia. I, I think it'll be a an interesting trial. I think there will be a lot of outside influence seeking to sway public opinion. And, you know, God knows what that'll look like. But, you know, again, it's uh, you know, going to be a long, hot summer here. Yep. Hot girl summer. Indictment summer. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. I mean, I've never heard of anybody completely clearing out a courthouse and having the entire team work from home. I mean, that's that's for for an indictment of like Rudy. That's, <laughs> you know, we've, we've indicted in this country public officials for decades and decades uh, and nothing like this has ever happened. That's why I'm pretty confident that it's going to be uh, Donald Trump. But we'll see. All right, we have to take a quick break. We have a lot more news to get to. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. It's AG from Clean Up on Aisle 45, and you can unearth the freshest flavors of the season with HelloFresh. Each recipe is meticulously crafted, and it's a journey through seasonal ingredients that's dropped right off at your doorstep. In every bite, you'll experience the culinary innovation that sets HelloFresh apart. 
When the spring sunshine is calling your name, do not call for takeout. Get HelloFresh instead. Go to HelloFresh.com slash CLEANUP16 and use code CLEANUP16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. Uh, I can't wait to try their new pork katsu with sesame roasted carrots and ginger rice. It's one of their Hall of Fame top rated recipes. It looks phenomenal. Uh, And not only does HelloFresh simplify dinner time, they also ensure every member of your family finds something mouthwatering on the menu. From fit and wholesome for health conscious folks, pescatarian for the seafood enthusiasts, to veggie for the plant lovers, they truly cater to all the tastes and lifestyles. You can also customize your meals by swapping out proteins and sides. It's like being your own chef, but without the stress. And if you're trying to save money, HelloFresh is about to become your best friend. Not only does HelloFresh cost less than your usual grocery shopping spree, but it's also 25% cheaper than ordering takeout. HelloFresh is all about delivering convenience, value, and of course, irresistible flavors. So go to HelloFresh.com cleanup16 and use code cleanup16 for 16 free meals plus free shipping. You'll be glad you did. And welcome back. We have some more patrons to thank. Wendy MK... Tom Pike, Scott, Katie Bottoms, Sarah Greenblatt, Karen Sherman, Larissa Bourgeois, Cindy C., Nana's Great, Savija, Denise Wilson, Gritty Drama with Strong Female Lead, Gina, I think, Lejeune, Janice and Sam, Cheryl Lindstrom, Emily Hove, Colleen Reeks, Kelly Joe Jackson, James Esch, Gretchen Hess, and Susan Kamen. Thank all of you so much. This is just uh, amazing support. And from the bottom of my heart, uh, really appreciate all of your support. So <laughs> let's go from uh, Georgia up to New York. And we've got some new information on the Manhattan District Attorney's case. And we, there's a bunch of stuff to go through on this. So, you know, you may remember that Trump kept whining that there were no underlying crimes for the 34 felony falsification of business records charges. Now, remember, in New York state law, those are misdemeanors. And if you want to elevate those charges to felonies, you have to have been falsifying a business record to cover up another crime. Now, finally, in response to Trump's complaints, Bragg's office has filed a bill of particulars. First off, he notes that, quote, the people are not required to list every action undertaken by the defendant in the course of a crime. In addition, The people are not required to include what he terms, quote, matters of evidence relating to how the people intend to prove the elements of the offense charged or how the people intend to prove any item of factual information included in the bill of particulars. Notwithstanding that the defendant is not entitled to the requested information and expressly without limiting the people's theory at trial, Bragg goes through and he lays out several laws in this filing. There's New York Election Law 17-152, New York Tax Law 1801, uh, subparagraph A3, New York's ta- New York Tax Law 1802, New York Penal Law 175.05, and Federal Election Campaign Act at 50, uh, Title 52, United States Code 30101. So essentially kind of trying to pull back from the, the legalese in this filing, the, the point of this filing is saying, yes, you are entitled to a bill of particulars, but keep in mind, me, the district attorney on behalf of the people are going to lay out some of these crimes, but keep in mind, we're not limited to this. We aren't telling you everything that you did or didn't do in the course of the crime. And that in fact, that all the things we may lay out and seek to prove in trial on the evidence, we don't have to give that to you right now either. He's entitled to discovery, he'll get discovery, but this is just sort of a a short answer 
of what those crimes he's envisioning are that will take those business record charges, link to them, and raise it up to a felony. And again, you're looking at election law violations, you're looking at tax law violations, you're looking at penal law violations, and finally, and those are all state, New York state laws, and then finally also looking at federal election campaign uh, violations. So there's a, there's a broad sort of basket, if you will, of what Bragg is saying, hey, look, you asked for how we intend to get there. It might be some or any of these. And oh, by the way, it might not be limited to that if we find other items. And then you know, also this from the New York Times, they're saying to that end, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office is now considering a new round of criminal charges against uh, Weisselberg for a number of things. They've uh, perjury, insurance fraud, and inflating the numbers on Trump's financial statements. It, it seems to me, and I think, you know, Allison, I think you agree that they're trying to get him to flip. Um, he hasn't yet, and it, it doesn't look like he's seeking to cooperate. And so now if they're going down the uh, path of bringing charges, that would be one of the, you know, sort of last steps about, all right, if, if you don't want to cooperate, then we're going to charge you and see if that changes your mind. And if it doesn't, then he's going back to Rikers. And, you know, the, the, Perjury charge goes way back. I, you know, this is something he said apparently during a Tish James deposition back in 2020. So, you know, three three years ago or so. And we don't know what it was. She she um, referred that. She didn't disclose the details of it. Uh, Lisa Rubin is speculating that it could be about the claim that Trump's Manhattan apartment was three times its actual size and was overvalued by at least $200 million. And Weisselberg may have known that it was false uh, when it was included in the financial statements. So, you know, this that sort of pattern of behavior on Trump's parts, I mean, that was the core of a lot of the tax fraud, you know, playing games with valuation and, uh, you know, overvalue it overvaluing it for the purpose of uh, getting financing, potentially fraudulently getting financing. And then when it turns around, it comes time for to pay taxes, going the opposite direction and undervaluing it. And it stands to reason that Weisselberg, who was knew everything about the books, would be right in the middle of it. So, you know, we'll see. How old is he now? 70, 70 something, right? We'll see if he's if he's headed back to a, a summer stay in, in Rikers or not. Yeah. And, and I think maybe... Putting him in Rikers for a hundred days, he's out now. Was just a like this is because before you know, I'm sure Bragg tried to flip him using the insurance fraud charges and and the the um you know falsifying the the business records, inflating the value of the apartment. I'm sure he tried to flip him on that before. Couldn't get his cooperation. Said, all right, well I'm going to get you on this. We'll do a hundred days. Put him in for a hundred days. He comes out. Okay, now what do you think? And I got you on perjury. Um, and I don't know if an additional perjury charge is going to, you know, if he wasn't going to flip before, I don't know that he'll flip now for just an additional perjury charge. We'll see. I mean, we'll see how it goes. Uh, the, you know, the DA's office is in this, we don't know that the charges are imminent. We are, haven't gotten any cooperation at all so far from Weisselberg. I mean, I think Weisselberg was born to go to jail for Donald. I mean, he's, <laughs> you know, that's kind of what his job is, uh, after breaking the law for so many years on so many things, knowing where all the bodies are buried, et cetera. And I just wanted to go back a second to the, uh, first part of the story when we were talking about the the bill of particulars. Uh, first of all, I love that the Manhattan DA is like, I don't have to tell you, but here they are. Uh, and it's not limited to this. But it's interesting because I know Pomerantz uh, told when he was on, I think, Rachel Maddow or, or Nicole Wallace, some, some MSNBC show uh, where he did an interview. He said uh, when his book came out, when he was on his book tour for his media blitz for his book tour, that, that the Manhattan DA, DA's office has in the past used federal statutes 
as the underlying crime to elevate falsification of business records from misdemeanors to felonies. But he doesn't have in his recent memory an instance when they used federal election law to do so, specifically federal election law. And that's what's laid out here uh, in in this thing. That doesn't mean that, it, you know, I mean, the whole concept of being able to use federal law to elevate the misdemeanors to felonies isn't new. That's not new. It's just this particular federal statute uh, that they're going to be uh, using to elevate. But there are four other statutes that are New York-based, and there's potentially more, right? I mean, New York itself, one of the laws here is a, is a New York election law, uh, a, you know, conspiracy to, you know, promote or doubt, you know, or go against an election uh, by a public official. So, I mean, they're, they exist as well. So they're not relying solely on the federal statute. It's just one of what appeared to be many. Right. And some of this goes, you know, again, the big thing is everybody who is screaming about whether or not Bragg should have gone first, whether or not this is legitimate, pump the brakes, because this is clearly, you know, something that has been thought through. He is not some hyper-aggressive, unqualified district attorney. He knows very much what he's doing. There is a lot of meat here. Again, you're talking different three different areas in New York state law, from tax law to election law to penal law. And then you're looking at federal, you know, potential election campaign violations. And whether that is something in terms of like whether or not, you know, Cohen's payoffs to Stormy Daniels and McDougal represented a contribution or not. The point is, this is not some slender thread where he's trying to walk a tightrope and only hit, you know, that that one narrow thing. There, there are a variety of paths here. So it strikes me as, you know, what what at least former New York state prosecutors were saying, exactly to your point, this isn't novel, particularly when it comes to linking it to federal crimes, but this is something that is consistent with what uh, district attorneys in New York state have done in the past. And I think this is consistent with that commentary. So, you know, I, I think we got a long way to go. You know, again, trial isn't going to be for, for a long time yet, not until, uh, you know, we start getting into substantive uh, motions and everything, I think, at the end of this year. So we got a ways to go. But, uh, you know, it's 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 serious and it's kind of moving down the path that I think a lot of folks who know the New York state criminal process predicted that it would. Yeah. And that first hearing is in December. Nobody asked for the speedy trial, uh, clearly, because that's something you really ask for when you're not guilty. Uh, and of course, uh, I don't think uh, Bragg wanted to, you know, in, you know, stop them from waiting all that time because there could be superseding indictments. He wants time to try to flip Weisselberg and put the screws to him to see if he can get him to flip on this additional perjury charge now that he's had a little taste of Rikers uh, as a 75-year-old guy. Uh, but, you know, we'll see. And of course, your Weisselberg's attorneys are like, he's old. You should leave him alone. He's old. Uh, which, uh, you know, is not a defense. Uh, they tried to use that for Manafort. They tried to use it for Stone. They, oh, he's an old guy. Let him just let him live out the rest of his life in peace, you know, and then that's that's really their only defense. And when that's your only defense, mm, <laughs> at least publicly, uh, I'm not sure uh, you have a very good case. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I agree. Pump the brakes a little bit on the shouldn't have gone first stuff. I mean, it is the oldest crime. I mean, he didn't go first on January 6th. He didn't go first on election interference. He didn't go first on classified documents. He went first on a seven-year-old crime. Uh, and, you know, that that was that started in the Mueller probe, by the way, and was handed off to Southern District where it got shut down and then moved over to the moved over to the New York Attorney General and the Manhattan DA. So it's an old it's an old crime. So it, it, 
it was destined to go first if it was going to go first, uh, because everything else happened four or five years after that, that that Trump's currently being investigated for. All right, we got to take another break. We have more news to get to. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch you will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. All right, more patrons to thank. It's a patron party. It's a pajama jam. Uh, I'm really excited. Thanks to Julie Huppertz, Jeannie Ford, Daniel Bell, Stephen Chevalier, Age Reese, Brooke Roddenbush, Jennifer Simmon, Greg Roth, uh, Anna Delgenio, Teresa Sovereign, Lucas Majewski, Alice Mary, Sarah Lee Etter, Janet Mazany, uh, Jillian Major, Dale Lynn Amon, Nikki G, Emily Miller, Catherine Egan, Tammy Arroyo, uh, Tammy Arroyo, Mombali Glam, love it. Uh, Tanya Thompson Fuller, John D. Bacalar, Marilyn Daniels, Toba Tiege, Stacey Coy, Jan Mitchell. I'm sorry if I butchered any of your names, but uh, thank you very much. All right, Pete, let's talk about the Weaponization Committee <laughs> and the reporting about Jim Jordan's whistleblowers from the New York Times. What do you have for us? Well, you know, this is this is coming out of the bureau. This was the, the bureau's week, and it's kind of you know, it, it's hard to for me to talk about at least just because I've got some you know pretty strong emotions and 
things that I'd you know say or rather not say. But look, bottom line is, according to the New York Times, the FBI revoked the security clearances of three agents, uh, Alan Friend and a guy named Gloss, who either took part in the riot at the Capitol on January 6th or later expressed views about it that placed into question what they're calling, quote, allegiance to the United States. And this wasn't just a reporting in the in the New York Times. They actually, the Bureau put that, the FBI put that in a letter to congressional investigators. Now, you know, kind of, you know, perhaps somewhat amusingly, there was a senior bureau official who had gone in for testimony to the committee and Jim Jordan was demanding explanations of why these people, if they had their clearances suspended or revoked and wanted more information and damn it, why are you hiding this information from me and give it to me? And the bureau said, all right, you want information? Here you go. And again, for folks <laughs> in your in the audience who don't understand the security clearance process in a lot of detail, you know, you go through this big background process where people, you know, interview your neighbors and your friends and references and jobs and everything else, look at your credit report and all this stuff. And at the end, if you get a clearance, um, you th- that is subject one to, it gets reviewed every five years, they'll go out and do a reinvestigation. But if you do something questionable, there is sort of an escalating ladder of what can happen. One thing, what is comparatively easy to do is suspend it. You still have your clearance, but your access to classified information has been suspended while, you know, maybe somebody has a DUI or they're under investigation for some sort of serious crime or the IG, things are going on where additional information needs to come up to decide whether or not it's going to be suspended. A much more serious uh issue or thing to be done with the clearances to have it revoked. And there are, you know, there are due process rights that attach that, like at least within the FBI, if your clearance is revoked, you that you lose it forever. You don't get it back. It's gone. You have the ability. There's a panel. It's like the Adjudication Review Committee or ARC or something like that. I think it's called the Department of Justice where you go in, you can present evidence, but it's a very serious thing. Sus- suspended clearances happen frequently. Revoked clearances really, really rare. And that points to the severity of some of the alleged behavior that these folks engaged in. And to get it to be revoked, it's it's more than allegations, right? I mean, they have to find fact that, you know, would support revoking it. So of those three, though, in that New York Times, guess what Jim Jordan decided to do with this committee? Why don't we get two of these folks in there as part of, you know, <laughs> their three FBI people to come testify as whistleblowers? Now, I don't think he or, frankly, anybody on the committee was anticipating that the Bureau would provide this information. I think he was going to – he thought he was going to bring them out, have them testify about the their claimed bad behavior by the FBI, which, in my opinion, they didn't do a very compelling job at all of, of demonstrating. But then the night before, when the FBI turns over this letter saying, hey, in fact, yeah, you wanted more information? Here you go. By the way, two of your three witnesses – had their clearances revoked for just really egregious behavior. Um, now, in questioning, of course, because it's not just Jim Jordan and the Republicans, you've got a whole half, the other half of the aisle. Two of them admitted under questioning from, uh, you know, friend of the program, uh, Congressman Dan Goldman and others, that in fact, they had accepted money from Cash Patel. Now, Cash Patel, you may recall, was he worked for Devin Nunez on the House Intel Committee. Then he went into the administration where he did a bunch of sort of odd jobs around the White House. He was moved over into the Department of Defense. <laughs> Changed light bulbs, brought ketchup. Yeah, exactly. It was sat, yeah. sat in on, you know, Ukraine, you know, national security policy meetings <laughs> instead right. of Alex Vindman because it's like, <laughs> you know, hey, you, you look like a, you look like a Ukraine guy. Sit down. But, you know, and then he goes off to. And they didn't want to correct Trump because he was confused. <laughs> well, yeah, and it can't be a new feeling for him. Um, and then he goes off to DOD where he's in a 
senior position and, you know, can put the, put the brakes on any sort of like, you know, response to the insurrection on January 6th or, you know, looking into Italian space lasers and other BS that, you know, allegations were going around. But in any event, he leaves and two of these quote unquote whistleblowers admitted that, yeah, I got money from cash. And oh, by the way, yes, you know, helped. And one of them, in fact, is employed by an organization that was set up by Mark Meadows of all people. So, you know, these aren't, when you, when you sort of peel back who is funding these folks, when you peel back who is supporting them, everybody's entitled to a job, right? Everybody can take money. There's nothing illegal about it. But if you're trying to make a compelling case that you're a whistleblower, that's not one of the things that you want to do. And so again, it, it's, and it's not just, look, every bureau agent and, and investigator and employee is entitled to their opinion. They can have Trump-loving sentiments up, down, left, and right. They can have Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton-loving, Bernie Sanders, whatever the case may be. That's fine, but that's not what these folks are accused of. That's not the detail that was provided when it came to why their revocations were, uh, and were why their clearances were revoked. I mean, in Gloss's case, it was revoked two weeks ago after bureau investigators determined that while he was moving with the pro-Trump mob on January 6th, not as an investigator, as a protester, he entered a restricted area of the Capitol grounds, which is a violation of federal law. And then after that, he was also found by the FBI to have provided what they termed false and or misleading information about what he saw on January 6th and about whether he was in a, in a restricted area that day. And again, so this isn't just somebody saying, hey, I support Trump. Hey, I support the right of these people to protest. This is somebody that actually went and broke federal law and then you know, provided what they're calling false and misleading information about what he saw on January 6th and what he did. In Allen's case, his clearance was revoked after the Bureau found that he'd, quote, expressed sympathy for persons or organizations that advocate, threaten, or use force or violence. FBI investigators determined that Allen had sent an email from his Bureau account to several colleagues months after the Capitol attack, urging them to, quote, exercise extreme caution and discretion in pursuit of any investigative inquiries or leads pertaining to the events of January 6th. And then finally, Friend, the uh, third agent whose security clearance was revoked, last summer refused to take part in the SWAT arrest of a January 6th suspect. And he also noted that he downloaded documents from an FBI computer system to what was termed in the letters an unauthorized removable flash drive. And then finally, while still a Bureau employee, he gave interviews to both RT as well as Sputnik, both of which you might know are registered agents of the government of Russia. And he gave them interviews without coordinating with anybody in the FBI while he was still an FBI employee. So again, these, I can't, all of these individually are extraordinarily serious things. These are not in any way, shape or form, any of these folks being, you know, some sort of retribution by the FBI for being whistleblowers. No, these are, these are absolutely unacceptable things, whether it is refusing to arrest somebody from an arrest warrant issued by a federal judge, whether it is breaking the law in the context of a pro-Trump mob that engaged in an insurrection on January 6th, whether it is encouraging people to not really investigate inquiries or leads. I think there's some indication in Alan's case, and I may be mixing some of these folks up, that he went and checked um, records relating to somebody, said there were none, uh, this is January 6th individual, and then somebody else who later looked at it found all kinds of very inculpatory information. That that may or may not have been Alan. That might have been a different individual. But again, the point being, Allison, these aren't minor infractions. 
These are significant infractions. Whistleblower retaliation looks more like, uh, you know, federal government employee starting a podcast in her spare time and then having her job move across country, uh, being investigated by the Office of General Counsel and then being removed for not being mentally fit. That kind of that's sort of retaliatory. I'm, I, you know, I know that sounds oddly specific, but that's precisely what happened to me. Or, you know, maybe whistleblower retaliation, uh, you know, being fired from your uh, extremely successful long career at the FBI, uh, you know, for for simply uh, doing your job of, of investigating uh, certain ties with, uh, you know, maybe unfriendly foreign actors and certain presidential campaigns. I, you know, I'm just throwing a couple of whistleblower examples out there, a couple of examples of actual retaliation against whistleblowers. So, you know, I, I, do you know anybody like that? <laughs> just, just a couple. We'll see. Yeah. We'll see how that long, long path plays itself out as uh, folks. And, you know, there, there's nothing, unfortunately, fast about walking that path. But the, the point is these, these whistleblowers, the things, Allison, that they were claiming to blow the whistle on that the FBI, it was not compelling. You know, the FBI overcounted the number of cases because they had cases in every one of the FBI's 56 field offices. Well, guess what? Over a thousand people have been charged with the uh, the insurrection at the Capitol with cases in every one of the FBI's field offices. There were that many just because, A, just on January 6th, the people at the Capitol, there were well over a thousand. When you add on people who may have been engaged that, you know, I did not hear anything that what made me think- What are you blowing think, the whistle on there? Oh, there's just so many yeah, no, I, I, cases. Right. And 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 so they, they change. And so I didn't hear anything in terms of the, the numbering scheme. Jim Jordan or somebody else tried to make a, the case that, you know, the, the FBI is targeting Catholics. And, you know, look, I'm Catholic. I, I, I don't, there's nothing I've seen that made me think that the FBI is going after anybody for, you know, sort of, uh, you know, protecting religious expression. Joe Biden is Catholic. He's right. <laughs> right. So he's he's targeting the church, right? And some of it, like, you know, and if there are things, you know, I think there was one written product where the Bureau quickly said, okay, that probably shouldn't have gone out, didn't meet our analytic standards. They withdrew it. And, you know, they're looking into how it came to be. And, you know, to the extent, you know, anybody needs any corrections to process needs to be made or anybody needs to be, you know, addressed through the disciplinary process, they're doing it. But none of these things... You know, there isn't some wild targeting of, you know, the guy down in Florida who friend didn't want to arrest. They found out the only person who was arrested during that time, because the Bureau hasn't said who it is, the only person arrested during that time had posted multiple times to social media, you know, images of him with a, or videos even, of him with an AR-15, with, a, with an assault weapon. And so some notion that you don't want to use SWAT to go out and protect the officers arresting this guy and keep in mind on the heels of, you know, two FBI agents who were tragically killed the year before when they went to arrest a nonviolent uh, pedophile, you, you, you don't know what somebody's state of mind is going to be. And Finn said, oh, well, he told me he would be, you know, he'd be cooperative. Well, I, okay, buddy, that's great. And you said that to your supervisor and the chain of command took that into account and they decided that they were going to use SWAT. You don't get to suddenly become a conscientious objector because as a federal agent, you don't think that the FBI should be uh, affecting arrest warrants that a federal judge has found probable cause to believe that somebody violated the law. You just you you don't get to do that. That's not part of your job mm -hmm. description. And there's nothing conscientious, ob objector ish, you know, about <laughs> this. It's 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 ridiculous. I think again, it's every every hearing is a disaster for Jim Jordan. 
whatever, there, there is no credibility left. I think people tune in with, you know, on the one hand, hoping to find something that they're going to laugh over, you know, 30, 40%, hopefully hear something that they're going to get picked up on OEN or Newsmax. But there, there is no good government value to these hearings. It's a joke. Yeah, no, I'm just watching to see what uh, what the Dems do, uh, Dan Goldman, and I mean, I'm you know, I'm I'm there to see them just pick apart these whistleblowers because, the, like, you know, you talk about finally getting to what they have to say, you know, it, it and it just reminds me that these Jim Jordan whistleblowers are a lot like Trump lawsuits. Once you blow through them with standing and jurisdictional arguments about how they make no sense and have no basis in law and that all the case citations are idiotic. Even when you get to the merits of the case, the meat of the the meat on the bones, there's still no meat there. It's still the dumbest argument you've ever heard. And it's and it's just it's, you know, so we a lot of people don't even realize like what these whistleblowers complaints were because they just shouldn't have even been there in the first place as whistleblowers. So, you know, not to say that they're we you know we don't want to decide whether we call them whistleblowers or not, but just that they're they're not being retaliated against. You know what I mean? Like you like going through a, a Trump lawsuit, say you don't even have standing to be here after you've judge shopped. And uh, now all of a sudden, you know, you want us to like hear the merits. Okay, well, fine. What do you have to say? Uh, what is your complaint? And it's just the dumbest shit you've ever heard in your life. So uh, that's kind of what it reminds me of is, you know, I, again, I don't think a lot of people even realize what these whistleblowers complaints are, because by the time you get to them, they're just so far discredited and so long gone as credible witnesses that it just doesn't even matter what you have to say anymore. But, you know, when we do listen, it's still just ridiculous. Yeah. And again, Every agent, have your opinion. That's fine. God bless you. You know, if you want to talk about it, you know, at home in the backyard with your friends or whatever, but don't, don't drag it into the clown show that is Jim Jordan's <laughs> committee and shit all over the FBI. You're making a clown of yourself. Whatever credibility you have, it's like, okay, you're, so you're saying things that are easily debunked. You just had your clearance revoked for things that are fireable offenses if proven out, you're getting paid by Cash Patel and you're employed by an entity linked to Mark Meadows. Funded by Trump. <laughs> Have the good sense to keep your damn mouth shut. You're not, they, they, there's no legitimate whistleblowing going on here. And well, that's all I, they have. It's, it's just, bottom you know, of the I don't want to, like, you know, the last thing, and it's, you know, just the last thing I want to do is, you know, criticize a fellow agent. But, you know, when you get to the point where you're finding things like that, have the good sense to know you know, keep your opinion, have your opinion, but keep it to yourself. Because all you're doing is undermining your credibility. All you're doing is undermining the FBI. You're not demonstrating mm -hmm. any wrongdoing whatsoever. And it's just well, really that's disappointing what to Republicans see. Republicans do, right? They find three guys in the FBI who thinks January who think January 6th was rad. Or they find two doctors who think that ivermectin's going to work. Or they find yeah, one two, candidate. Two quote-unquote journalists and Matt Taibbi and <laughs> what the other guy's name was, right? Or they find one candidate who they, they think that they can run for Senate, uh, you know, against Fetterman or they have, you know, they just they are able to find like one or two, they three climate scientists who think that there's no such thing as climate change. You know, that that's what they do. They find their one or two or three people and they amplify them as if though as if everybody feels this way. And it's just it's never it's never correct. Um, but, they, you know, that's what they do. They find bits and pieces, tiny little things like they did in the Durham report, amplify it like it's uh, the, the Bible. And, uh, you know, that's what they do to the Bible, too. OK. All right. You know what? <laughs> we could talk about this for hours, uh, but we do have more news to get to. We're going to take one more quick break. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. 
Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn-in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane, and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA. As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler, how much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary. They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry. We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, Show me, in a courtroom, how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in Armani suit standing in the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now. Welcome back. One last round of patrons, and thanks for your patience while we thank everyone. We didn't expect this much love. So to Terry Kirby, Deborah Crow, Mara, Elizabeth Gill, Joyce, Stacy Lynn, Cherie Lehman, Call Me Donkey 73, Michael Morin, Johnny Stewart, Martha Mitchell, Jacqueline Armendariz Reynolds, Melissa K. Smith, Helen Lovkin, Jean Salter, Megan, Yo Bunny Bunny, Michelle L. Winner, Ellen McNamara, Lorraine Jansen, C.J. Peterson, Joshua and N.C., and Anastasia B. Thank all of you so much. I just, you know, it's it's an extraordinary outpouring of support. Thank you. Um, and again, can't, can't, uh, thank you for bearing with us when we go through all the names, but just really want to recognize each and every one I, of you. We weren't expecting over 100 new patrons. <laughs> So thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. All right. So just a couple more bits of news this week in uh, in in cleaning up here. A judge decided to deny bail to Jack Teixeira, the Massachusetts Air National Guard member accused of leaking highly classified military documents, meaning that he's going to remain behind bars until trial. The judge said that he denied bail to Teixeira because he's a flight risk and because he's a severe risk to obstruct justice. Now keep in mind the way the statute's written. There, it's a two-part test, right? You can do either like, well, this person is a flight risk 
or or and or he's a severe risk to obstruct justice. And the judge in this case found that both of those prongs were met, and that you know instead of not just one, but in both of those cases, uh, Dale bail should be denied. And it's a pretty sternly worded worded 22-page uh, order. He called Tashira, quote, disloyal to the U.S. And that the reason that the judge was so uh, adamant about Tashira's behavior and denied him bail was that prosecutors said in court papers uh, filed this week that Tashira was caught, or I think last week, um, Tashira was caught by superiors months before his April arrest, taking notes on classified information and viewing intelligence not related to his job. In fact, he was twice admonished by superiors in September and then again in October, and then finally observed yet again in February viewing information, quote, that was not related to his primary duty and was related to the intelligence field. So, you know, I think the judge looked and said, hey, both because, and he cited specific examples in this order, because of the information that Tashira accessed, the fact that he still potentially had classified information in his head, the fact that he had said in, um, you know, in as many words on these Discord servers that, you know, if you have questions, you know, DM me and I'll try my best to answer them, knowing that some of the audience were foreign powers, that essentially he was potentially offering assistance to what he knew or thought could be a, uh, a foreign power, or people who were working as agents of foreign power. And then he also cited several instances of particularly violent behavior, including something that comes from a sealed exhibit that none of us have seen. But when it comes to what uh, the sort of danger to a community, um, you know, whether or not he's inclined to engage in violence, there are something, is something that investigators uncovered in the course of the investigation that resonated enough with the judge that the judge cited it saying, okay, notwithstanding all the classified information you might have that might pose a danger to the community, there's also this gun attraction and things that we've seen, you know, history of making threats and something unknown that caused the judge to also think that he should not be released because of the potential for violence there. So um, pretty serious case. I've worked a ton of mishandling and disclosure cases. The getting somebody pretrial detention is absolutely the exception to the rule. Most people are released either with, you know, under bail or have to wear a GPS monitor and surrender their passports. Uh, the It is a small percentage. I mean, probably less than 25% who have bail completely denied. So it's a big deal. And we'll see, uh, you know, we'll see if he pleads or, or goes to trial. Now, they also said, you know, severe risk to obstruct justice. And I was wondering if that's because of all of the smashed PlayStations and Xboxes and computers that they found, uh, you know, because it looked like he really tried to destroy a lot of evidence. Uh, is, is that kind of, did, did the judge say uh, with regard to the, the risk of obstructing justice that he could be a danger to the public because he might obstruct justice? Well, yeah, and absolutely obstruction was part of that. And the judge cited all those things. He cited the destroyed tablet, the Xbox, the uh, the computer. He also cited where Tashera had told a friend, hey, I got a new iPhone because my old one was run over by a truck on the highway. So, you know, he clearly does make a point that in destroying these things, that obstruction is a very real threat and that he, in fact, had engaged in threatening behavior. And, you know, and there's also some stuff, you know, he keys to the wartime environment. He, there's a quote where the judge cites, in doing so, there's reason to believe he placed at risk men and women on our armed services, civilians and soldiers in Ukraine and elsewhere, doctors and medical professionals providing humanitarian aid, and the list goes on. And so he is citing to the fact that, you know, wartime is different and that, you know, the things he was talking about and accessing related to the war in Ukraine and what Russia and Ukraine were doing. And then finally, at the end, he just 
blasts him that, you know, hey, all the assurances that he is trying to give that he can honor the terms of release, you know, he's saying that the uh, defendant's about face from what he wrote. This is when Teixeira, after being denied a, uh, a gun card permit in, in Massachusetts to buy a firearm, enlisted and then went back and said, hey, you can give me one of these firearms cards now because I'm enlisted and I have a clearance. Defendant's about face from what he wrote, his recognition that his conduct affects not only himself and acceptance that he is responsible for anything he may do or say undermines faith that defendant will honor a commitment to abide by conditions of release. So he looks at, uh, you know, his sort of his past behavior, finds that he has, uh, you know, lied in the past and that he would presumably, you know, what he is saying now can't be trusted. And based on that, that he needs to be detained until he gets to trial. Yeah, very interesting. I, I, I was thinking that he might be detained, but uh, I, I wasn't expecting such a, uh, you know, expansive and harsh ruling and descriptions as to, you know, why. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm thankful for the, for the judge for all of that information. I think it really sort of paints a picture about who Tashera is and that there's, there could be a lot more that we don't know. I ex- maybe, you know, we will see some superseding indictments in this case. We'll keep you posted on it. Uh, but he is off the streets, uh, danger to the public, flight risk, uh, danger to obstruct justice. I mean, all the things, all the bad things, all the reasons you want to keep somebody in pretrial detention. All right. One last little bit of thing here. And I, I just, <laughs> this was fun for me. Uh, Trump Media Technology Group, TMTG, which runs Truth Social, has filed a $3.78 billion, with a B dollar defamation lawsuit against the Washington Post and a former TMTG employee, Will Wilkerson, saying that for the, a former TMTG employee, that's Will Wilkerson, told a bunch of lies to the Washington Post and The Guardian about Truth Social being under investigation. Now, he's, he's only suing Washington Post here, not Will Wilkerson or The Guardian. But Truth Social is under investigation for potential money laundering, and that some of the money seems to be from Russia and a porn-linked bank called Paxum. And then... Uh, the Washington Post that the story is called trust linked to porn friendly bank could gain a stake in Trump's true social. And I'd like to draw your attention, Pete, to page nine of the lawsuit, paragraph 17, quote, as was naturally and foreseeably intended by Washington Post and Wilkerson, the statements were republished millions of times on May 13th, 2023 and thereafter, including by a prominent anti-TMTG Twitter user, Mueller, she wrote, quote, <laughs> ha, the Russian tied to the bank that loaned True Social $8 million to stay afloat also donated $30,000 to Ron DeSantis, and the bank is the number one trusted payment service of the porn industry. Oh, the tangled web they weave, unquote. <laughs> Let's go. Let's go. <laughs> I have arrived. I have made it as a, <laughs> and I'm not a footnote either. No, no, Pete. no you are a prominent anti-TMTG <laughs> Twitter user. Prominent. <laughs> I'm right there in the lawsuit. So thank you, everyone. It's been five and a half long years, uh, but it's finally happened. My day has come. Uh, we will keep an eye on this. I called up my lawyer, and I was like. All right, so do we file a sanctions motion or what? He's like, this is so funny. Uh, and no, probably not. But 
Uh, this lawsuit is out there. I'm sure it will get tossed out like the one against Washington Post got tossed out in February and all of his other lawsuits get tossed out. And if it doesn't get tossed out, it'll probably be sanctioned. There will be sanctions motions. We know Alina Haba is on the hook for a million uh, bucks for one of her lawsuits. I think it was against Fulton County DA. It might have been against Tish James. I'm not quite. I, no, I, no, 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 so no. That many. was that was against me and Hillary Clinton and all the oh, James Comey. That's all of right. It. Right. I'm sorry. Right. That no, was when he yes. sued you. Damn it! I want to say and, thirty and, other defendants. Yeah, and the and the government declined to add their name into the other uh, defendants to seek relief. So had they done it, that bill would have been even higher, maybe. But uh, yeah, yes. super fun. Uh, so anyway, just a little fun note at the end of this episode of Clean Up on Aisle 45, I will keep you posted on the de- disposition of that particular legal, quote unquote, filing. Uh, but uh, that's it. And I know we had a lot of news to get through. I know we had a lot of patrons to read. Again, I want to thank our patrons so, so, so very much. Uh, you guys are truly, truly incredible. You make the show happen. Pete, do you have any final thoughts before we get out of here this week? No, just let's see what happens with, uh, I'm curious, we'll have the, you know, one more circus on this coming Thursday with, I think, John Durham, although I don't know if he's confirmed that he's going to appear in front of Jim Jordan, but, you know, we'll we'll get the last dying gasps as that whole episode finally uh, falls to the ground, dead and lifeless. <laughs> um, yeah, and we'll cover that on our bonus episode this weekend uh, for patrons and uh, in depth next week. On Clean Up on Aisle 45, I've been Allison Gill. And I'm Pete Strzok. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is written, researched, and produced by Allison Gill with editing by Molly Hockey. Our art and logo designer by Joelle Reeder and Moxie Design Studios, and our music is composed and performed by Adam Orr. Clean Up on Aisle 45 is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, visit mswmedia.com. M-S-W Media. Hi, this is John Cryer, and I am hosting a new seven-part true crime podcast called Lawyers, Guns, and Money that'll challenge everything you think you know about U.S. covert operations and presidential misconduct. From Jack Bryan, the director of American PSYOP, comes the incredible true story of John Mattis, a newly sworn in Miami public defender in the 1980s who has found himself completely in over his head. I step off the plane and there is a van with a couple guys with Uzis. And one of them in broken English said, welcome to Bogota, John. Mattis's first felony defendant has been arrested for having a machine gun and tells Mattis a dangerous secret. He was shipping arms into Central America on behalf of the CIA As a first-time lawyer, I want to act like I know what I'm doing. But with the help of a Colombian drug smuggler... How much money the CIA raised by hitting up drug dealers? A lot of money, millions of dollars. An Alabama mercenary... They were prepared to die to the last man. I saw this in them. I saw the fire in their eyes. And they made me their war chief. And a newly elected senator, John Kerry... We are looking at allegations of drug running, gun smuggling, conspiracy to commit murder and murder itself. He'll fight to free his client. The judge said, show me in a courtroom how we were at war. Expose an illegal war being run by the White House. I mean, I wanted him involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. And somehow stay alive in the process. 
I just escaped a kidnapping by the CIA in Costa Rica. This is Lawyers, Guns, and Money. So you have a man in an Armani suit standing on the bow of a boat with a rocket launcher and says, if I lose sight of you, I will launch. You will be vaporized. Available everywhere starting October 29th, or get it ad-free and early starting October 22nd at lawyersgunsandmoney.supercast.com. There you'll find bonus episodes along with exclusive content. Subscribe now.